Well, good evening, everybody. Um, so uh, this is our second class uh, of our apologetics classes that we'll be having over the course of the next uh, eight weeks from here on out. Um, before we get into today's topics, I just wanted to briefly kind of cover what we talked about last time, because uh, there's some people who weren't here, maybe didn't hear kind of uh, what apologetics is and heard all those questions and all the answers that we had to that. So um, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which just means a defense, um, has nothing to do with apologizing um, or any kind of concept or notion of that. Uh, in the New Testament and other writings from the time, uh, the Greek word apologia is used often in a legal sense. Uh, it's usually our logical, rational reason defense. To illustrate this, we looked at through the course of Acts, there's several different instances where the Greek word apologia is used, uh, where Paul is standing before government and the religious leaders, uh, giving his defense for the gospel. Also, we talked about how there's instances where the Greek word apologia isn't directly used, but we have like Stephen, like Pastor Greg talked about, was standing and giving a defense. Um, we've talked about um, how such logical and reason, reasoned and intellectual pursuits don't run counter to our faith, um, but they're actually integral to our faith. Uh, we looked at Matthew 22, which says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So we're to love God holistically with, with our entire being, and this includes our mind. Uh, Romans 12, in the same thread, uh, we're told that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Also, we talked about how Christian apologetics can sometimes rely on philosophy um, and how this is not prohibited in the Bible. Uh, the only usage of the Greek word philosophia, or for where we get the word philosophy, is in Colossians 2.8. And what we saw here, uh, Paul isn't giving a condemnation or a prohibition against philosophy. What he's warning of is bad philosophies that aren't based on Christ, but are based on human tradition or elemental spirits. And some would even maybe even argue that philosophy there can be used to speaking of religion or religious experience. Uh, we looked at the central apologetics passage, which was 1 Peter 3.15, where we were told to always be prepared to give a defense um, for the hope that is in us. And Peter tells us that this hope is the resurrection in Jesus Christ uh, and the new life that we have through him and his completed work on the cross. Also, we showed how this command was to be prepared to give a defense wasn't just for the leaders of the church, it was for the entire church as a whole because Peter is not writing to just the leaders as in say like Timothy or some of these pastoral epistles, he's writing directly to the churches. Um, also too, we talked about how our defense is done in all gentleness and kindness, so it's not a means of arguing for the sake of arguing. Also our how our changed lives in the the Holy Spirit working in our lives is an evidence of, the, of, our, of our defense and our apologetic because if we say these things are true and that Christ changes us, our changed lives show on to people that, yes, this is a truth. Finally, we talked about how evangelism and apologetics are two sides of the same coin. Um, if we are out spreading the seed as we're supposed to be doing and telling people the truth of the gospel, then we'll get questions about the faith. We say, Jesus, you know, was the son of God and he died for your sins. They say, well, how do I know Jesus was a real person? That's just an example. So if we're out there sharing the word, we're going to get the questions and we have to be prepared to give a defense. So this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at truth and kind of the nature of truth. And then next week, we're going to be looking at uh, the New Testament, specifically the Gospels and how we kind of how we got it and how we can know that we can trust it.
Um, also, I wanted to reiterate that if you have any questions, please feel free to raise your, raise your hand and ask, uh, especially kind of today. Um, I might do, it's going to be, we're going to have a, I'm going to give some definitions of some uh, kind of, I guess you could say technical things. And uh, I want you to be able to ask and clarify and us to be able to talk about these things and wrestling with some of the things that I'm going to be talking about um, because you have to stop and you have to think about them for a minute to, to, to fully grasp what they're, what's being said. Um, so please don't be afraid to stop and raise your hand and ask questions. Because um, chances are if you have a question, someone else probably does too as well. So um, as I said, this class is mainly going to be focused on the idea of truth really what you call objective truth versus relative truth. Also, how we can know that objective truth exists, its relationship to reality, and ways to refute the idea that truth is actually relative or subjective. Um, because really today, this is something that permeates our culture. It's all over the place. And you, you hear people say things like, well, that's your truth, or find your truth. You hear people say this stuff. Um, and we need to be able to um, refute these things, one, because they're, they're erroneous and false, but also because objective truth is really central to the Christian faith. Um, just as Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know that God and his truth is steadfast and unchanging. Malachi 3, 6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. And Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we look at that, it's no wonder that the idea of relative truth and these what we, what we would call corresponding like theories of truth uh, have been really weaponized against Christianity. Uh, for those hostile to the faith think that if you can kill the concept of truth or an idea of absolute truth, then you can really kill the idea of any kind of you know, true religion or true morality. Now, like I said, we're going to go over a couple technical definitions uh, because it's important for the discussion. But before, uh, before we do that, um, some people might kind of question the pursuit of this and, well, why do we need to know these like technical terms or why do we need to kind of know the history of where these lines of thought came from? Um, well, I I think it's important that to understand that, yes, this stuff kind of starts like in academia, but it doesn't ever stay there, okay? These counter-Christian thoughts and doctrines almost, again, they start there, but they filter their way down uh, through the broader culture. Usually it's kind of through, starts in like elite institutions and, you know, as they teach and train others, then it gets passed down and then, you know, then it kind of just becomes permeating through the culture. Um, and I want to kind of illustrate this now. Has anybody here ever heard of CRT before, critical race theory? Raise your hand. Okay. So um, my, I'm not here to critique or talk about that per se. I just am using this as an illustration point. Okay. So um, if you were to mainly just hear, hear of CRT um, from the news, you'd probably think it was a pretty recent development. Like CRT just came out of nowhere, right? Or that somehow it came up, you know, back in 2015 or something of that nature, right? Well, um, actually, CRT has its roots um, in academia starting in the U.S. in the 1970s. And it goes, and it started in prestigious law schools like Yale and Harvard. And really, it was in kind of the, the dialogue of the law schools, really. 
but it goes back even further than that. In the 1930s, um, it, there was this thing called critical theory that came out of what was called the Frankfurt School, which is a very prestigious and elite school in, in Germany. Okay, so see this, and now today, because it's, as we saw, it's a, a main thing like in the elections in Virginia, um, that it's at the forefront. Now they're, it came from, you know, high academia, now they're trying to teach it to children. And I use that uh, to illustrate that this, these ideas that we're gonna talk about, um, well, many of them are even older than that, some of them going back to the 18th century, but that they, they didn't just stay there. And now they, they've come out of the ivory tower of academia um, and it's pervaded our culture so much so that you know, people don't even notice that they're believing these ideas and these philosophies. Now, sadly, um, these false ideas of truth have kind of more, you know, subversively snuck their way into culture. Um, and so much so that people don't even know that they believe this stuff. And that you can ha hear people say, well, find your own truth. You can hear them say that kind of in like common discourse through the day. And people don't even sit there and refute it. They just assume it somehow to be like a real thing. So, like I said, it's, it's everywhere. And it also makes sense, too, when you think about how it's filtered down through, um, because oftentimes people who are hostile to Christianity, they're pushing it as a means of really converting people to their, their agnosticism or their atheism. So, as I said, let's go ahead and start with some definitions. Um, I think it's easiest to lay these out up front, and then as we kind of go in and discuss uh, you'll see, you'll see why, we, why I bring these up first. So the first thing I want to define is objective truth and relative truth. Okay. So objective truth is something that is true if it, it's true for all people at all times in all places. Objective truth is something that is true for everyone, whether they agree with it or not. That which is true is always true, even if we stop believing it. So just because somebody says, well, I don't believe that's true, that doesn't make it no longer true. It's true regardless of whether or not you stop believing it. Objective truth used to really just kind of be what we would call truth. Um, so we have objective truth. Now, relative truth, when someone says that truth is relative, what they normally mean is that there is no absolute truth. Some things may appear true to you, but not to me. When people say things like, well, that's, you know, if it's fine if God exists, but he doesn't exist for me, right? There are expressions that people popularly, um, people popularly say and believe, and that truth is somehow relative or that you can make your own truth. So rel and you have unchanging objective truth and this idea of relative truth that's really changing and um, dependent on the person a lot of times. Now, so these, both of these types of truths have their, their grounding in um, what you would call theories of truth. So objective truth is rooted in what we call the correspondence theory of truth, okay? So the correspondence theory of truth is that truth claims and how they correspond to something in the real world determines whether or not it's true, okay? Correspondence theory is generally what we mean when we say something is true, that the truth claim corresponds to something in the real world, right? Can't, we can't make reality what we want it to be. 
See, God made the world. He made the facts about the world. And in this theory of truth, we determine that true statements are, again, based on the external state of affairs. So, again, whatever corresponds directly to reality is true. And as Christians, we can confidently say that our faith directly corresponds to reality. And we'll get more into this, but mainly the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is the big thing that we're going to be looking at. A something that happened in the real world that we can discover and, and measure truth claims against. Um, now, relative truth, so objective truth, and you have the correspondence theory of truth that are we determine whether or not something's true based on how it relates to reality, okay? Now, relative truth really has its roots in kind of two theories of truth called the coherence theory, and what's called the pragmatic theory, okay? So the coherence theory of truth claims that while something is true based upon how it relates to other truth claims, right? So your truth claims don't have to correspond to the external reality so long as they're coherent with each other. And this is problematic because when, if you decouple or like disconnect your truth from the outside world, then you can, as long as you make truth claims that kind of don't contradict each other, then it's, then it's okay. So that's the coherent, cohesion, sorry, the coherence theory of truth. And then there's the pragm, what's called the pragmatic theory of truth. And this one is the main theory that really brought about the, 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 uh, the true idea of like, um, that, well, sorry, it's, it's the main theory that people use to really argue away or try to argue away absolute truth. So the pragmatic theory says we should look for what works best for you because we can't know any truth. So essentially it's this, it's this mantra of, well, you know, make your own truth, right? That we can't, we can't know anything, which means then we can't know anything about God or the real world or anything of that nature. So whatever is true for you or whatever is right in your eyes, then you make those decisions based off of that. And that's your truth is that what it means for you, because we can't according, and we'll see why pragmatic theories of truth, why people think that um, we can't know truth. Um, but the, so this is one of the, really the main one that when people are talking about relative truth, this is the main one that they, that they kind of pull on. So we have objective truth, um, relative truth. We have kind of these three theories of truth. Now, the final thing I want to talk about um, is what you call a, a law or logical law. Um, and this, this is really important to understand this um, and its corresponding um, idea of self-defeating self statements because... Um, this really is where we, we helps us to refute these false ideas of relative truth. So the, the first one is called the law of non-contradiction. Okay. So the law of non-contradiction says A cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. So in this proposition, A refers to an object being discussed. Okay. For example, let's say A is a cat. All right. Non-A refers to any object that is not A. So, 
for this example, our non-A could be a dog, a refrigerator, a chair, anything except a cat, okay? Thus we arrive at the proposition, cats cannot be both cats and dogs at the same time and in the same relationship. Okay, this is the law of non-contradiction. You can't have something that says it is something and it isn't something being in the same relationship because it contradicts itself. With this too is the idea of a self-defeating statement. This is the statement that fails to meet its own standard. Okay, an example of a self-defeating statement is, I can't speak a word of English. That's self-defeating because very clearly in me saying I can't speak a word of English, I'm speaking English, therefore it does not, it fails to meet its own standard, okay? So these principles are really intuitive to everyone because it's, it's how we operate in the real world. Um, it's how we live out our daily lives. Um, and as I said, these are, these are the two big things that we need to understand, the law of non-contradiction and the idea of self-defeating statements to kind of refute these ideas of relative truth, okay? I guess there are any questions so far? So. so, again, objective truth is central to the Christian faith. So how do we go about refuting these relative truth claims? Well, they're, uh, they're mostly self-defeating uh, when we apply the law of non-contradiction and um, look at them when we apply that in the idea of self-defeating uh, statements. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So the question was: is 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 saying that I'm an atheist because I don't believe in God a a self-defeating or a self-contradicting statement? And I would say it it could be. Because one, the question comes like, why would we have any kind of concept of a God if there wasn't God? You know, it's like, you know, where would this idea have, have came from? Um, it's, I would, I would say in a way it could be, but um, I think you can say that like, I don't believe in, you know, the flying spaghetti monster. This flying spaghetti monster isn't real. We don't believe in him, but it's okay to say I don't believe in something that doesn't exist. So, I mean, but it, it, it does raise the question, well, where would our entire concept of God come from? What, you know, it doesn't seem like us being such self-centered beings that we would try to think of something of a higher power, you know, when we're, when the default kind of position of mankind is self-serving and worrying about themselves, why would we in any way have this, higher notion of a God. So, um, but yeah, that's a good question. So, so talking about the, the law of non-contradiction and the self-defeating statements, that is something that um, we, we, well, all we have to do in order to do this is that we have to um, turn the truth claims against themselves, okay? So asking questions of, you know, basically taking the statement and turning it into a question can kind of be a, a way of looking at it. So here's a couple examples. Um, so like, 
somebody says, well, all truth is relative, right? So then if you turn that on itself, well, is that a relative truth? Because the person saying all truth is relative, what they're doing is they're making an absolute truth claim. It's self-defeating, right? Or somebody says like, there are no absolutes. Well, it's like, okay, well, are you absolutely sure about that? Because it seems like you're absolutely sure that there's no absolutes, right? So turning the question on itself seems, well, it's pretty self-defeating, right? Or it's true for you, but not for me. Okay, is that statement true for everyone or is that just true for you? Because if you're saying, well, that's true for you, but not for me, well, I could sit there and say, well, that's true for you, but my truth is that, so it's, it's a self-defeating statement. Now, these are all, and this is kind of what I was, was talking about. These are very specific claims about the reality of truth. So they're making very specific, you know, there is no truth, there is no this, you know, all truth is relative. So they're contradicting themselves in their own statements, right? Now, there are other statements and claims that people make that don't seem to be as, ex make explicit claims about the nature of truth. Um, but they kind of make more claims about its ambiguity or like our inability to know the truth. Um, but these are equally as fallacious as the ones we just looked at. Now, kind of the, the big philosopher that was kind of, um, his name was Immanuel Kant. He's one of the main guys that's really responsible for this idea of like, well, we can't know truth. So he was a, um, his philosophies have been one of the more damaging in kind of the broader American culture. He said that we cannot know anything about the real world. And if he's right, then our main theory of truth, the correspondence theory of truth that says true relates to the reality would be, it would be out the window, right? Additionally, the claims of Christianity that we know for, that we know truth from creation, like Psalm 19 says, and that we know about the truth of Christ, and we know about the truth of everything that he said based off of his miracles and the evidence of his miracles and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, all that's kind of out the window of Kant's right. So um, this is one why I think a lot of people try to kind of push this idea because, well, if we can't discover any kind of truth about the real world, then we can't discover any truth about God either. So I feel like that's why a lot of times people kind of push this uh, his idea. So, so Kant's view, um, like I said, has indoctrinated a lot of people in the culture today, and it's really permeated the, permeated the culture. So why does Kant say we can't know anything about the real world? Well, because he says that, so our senses and our mind form all the, the, the sense data um, in, our, in our head, and we can't ever really know about the thing itself. So if I'm looking at this table um, Kant is saying that it only appears the way it does because my mind is forming the sense data of the table, okay? Kant would say, I, I couldn't ever really know this table itself only as it, as it appears to me. So, I, one, I would ask Kant, well, then why does the average person on the street not doubt what they see with their two eyes? Um, but yet he, as a supposedly brilliant philosopher, does, right? So we operate in the world where we, we have sense, sense data that seems that we're observing something external to us, 
and we all seem to see and agree upon the same external observation, right? People don't operate in, in this idea, in the real world, don't operate like, well, you know, I'm forming this image of this table in my head, and I can't truly know this table because it's filtered through my mind and my senses. Nobody, nobody operates in the real world that way, okay? So, but, you know, uh, people, like I said, people don't go about their lives doing this, and, you know, if you really want to confuse stuff, sometimes you, you give it to a philosopher, right? And they can sit there and ponder on it, and I can say that. I'm a, my bachelor's degree is in philosophy, so I can... I can say that, but um, but nonetheless, we we can't avoid studying philosophy. For as C.S. Lewis says, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. So, but see, Kant's view falls in error the same, but also too, kind of, does it not make any sense and nobody in the real world or the real life operates in that way? But also, too, Kant's view falls error in the same way that our previous claims that we talked about did. So even though he is more so claiming not to know anything or to, to claim you know, ambiguity of the truth, he is still violating the law of non-contradiction and his arguments are self-defeating. See, he contradicts his own, his own premise by saying that no one can know the real world while he himself claims to know something about it, right? This is kind of what you were talking about. It's like, I, you know, I, I can't, you know, I don't believe in God, but it seems that you have some concept of God, so why, you know, why is that there? But see, what Kant, what, Kant, what he's doing, he's saying, you know, he's, 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 deny, he's contradicting his own premise, um, namely that, you know, he says, well, you can't know anything about the real world, but yet he's claiming to know something about the real world. Mainly he's saying it's unknowable, but you see the contradiction there? In effect, he is saying, he's, he's saying, and we can kind of reorder what Kant is saying here, is the truth about the real world is that there is no truth about the real world. That's kind of what he's saying. It's a self-defeating statement similar to the ones that we looked at before. Also, Kant is committing something called the nothing but fallacy. See, Kant says the information into our brains is nothing but some kind of phenomenon. However, in order to know this, he would have to be able to see more than just the phenomenon. In other words, in order to differentiate between the two things, you would have to be able to perceive where one thing begins and one thing ends. Okay, so the simple fact that Kant says, well, there's something external, but it, we can't know it because it's in our, it's this, just this phenomenon, well, it seems this, you are saying that you actually know things about both those things. So in a sense, you saying you can't know anything about the external world, you are actually claiming to know something about the external world. Okay? So an example, if I hold this nothing but phenomenon and us needing to understand that, you know, it can't just be nothing but the phenomenon because you wouldn't know what the phenomenon was unless you had something to compare it to. Example would be if I put a white piece of paper on this table. So we would only know where the piece of paper ended and the table began by the black outline that is, on the, that is around the white piece of paper. In the same way too, Kant, we can, Kant is what he's saying, well, the only way we know what like a phenomenon in the brain is is because we know and we can compare it to an actual real thing in the external world. 
So his claims are self-defeating. Um, so Kant was wrong. Our minds don't, sh our minds don't shape the table. It doesn't shape our rea reality. The reality shapes our minds. And there's no chasm or great, you know, divide between us and reality because that's often what these views do is that somehow like, well, I can't, you know, I can't actually know anything to be true and I can't actually know reality or I can't know God. But that's not true. That's not true at all. Um, his attempts to say we cannot know anything about the real world and in turn God fails and it's self-defeating. Now there's, here's another kind of um, common thing that we see in the, in the, the culture today. Actually, Dylan and I had a, we kind of talked about this the other day at the Bible study. Um, but there's a common view in the world today, and that's your perspective equals reality. Okay. In a way, in a way, this is related to Kant's view in what we talked about, the pragmatic theory of, of truth. That, you know, well, you can't really know truth or it's your perception that makes your reality, so you do what's good for you, right? So there's an old parable of an elephant and blind men that people often try to use to illustrate uh, that perception equals reality. Um, variations of this parable have been circulating around social media and the internet. Um, I can remember one, there was, it was something that my wife's aunt posted or something, it was like a, it was like a cylinder. And so like there was a light coming this way and a light coming this way. And it's like person one sees a, a circle and then over here, well, person two sees a rectangle, right? It's a, this, that kind of thing is in the same line as this, this really this old parable. Um, and they're trying to point out the same thing, but they both really fail and are in error in the same way. So the parable starts with an elephant being examined by six blind men. Each of the men feels a different part of the animal and each comes to a different conclusion as to what they are feeling. One grabs the tusks and thinks it's, you know, a bull with horns. One grabs the trunk, thinks it's a large snake. One grabs a leg, says it's a tree. The fourth kind of grabs the tail and says, well, it's a rope. The fifth says the ear is a fan. And the sixth pushes on the elephant and says it's a wall, right? And this parable claims we all perceive things differently and that to each one of those blind men, they each are, are sure that they found truth through their perceptions. So, but the problem with this parable and others like it and is that on the surface, it, I mean, on the surface, it seems, oh yeah, you kind of sit there and think about it. But really, when we ask the question, well, what's the perception of the person telling the parable? See, the person telling the parable seems to have an objective perspective, right? Of everything going on. And the parable seems to rest on the fact that the observer can tell that everyone's mistaken. Right, the kind of the 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 mm hmm moment of the parable is when people are like, oh yeah, I could see how they could think the elephant was something else, but the point is the elephant's still there, you know, the cylinder. Like, oh, I look at it this angle, I see a circle, I look at it this way. But if you took a step back, you, there's an objective reality that's there that the elephant's there, the cylinder's there, and it's a cylinder. The elephant's there, and it's an elephant. Okay. So the person telling the parable seems to have an objective perspective of everything going on. And the parable seems to rest on the fact that, you know, like I said, that, that, oh, all these people are mistaken. See, 
we wouldn't know the blind men were wrong unless there was, like I said, the objective truth. Indeed, the blind men, if the blind men were instantly able to see, they would realize their error, right? You're sitting there holding the trunk of the elephant and you all of a sudden can see. You're like, oh man, I was wrong. Kind of reminds me of, you know, phrase in Amazing Grace, I was once blind, but now I see. Um, in all these parables, if the person that is claiming their perception is right, or the person that is looking at the shape one way or the other and calling it a circle or a rectangle, if they were be able to pull back and take an objective view, they would see their perceptions are wrong. Again, it's the irony and self-defeating nature of these illustrations and parables is that they're actually affirming and trying to show perception is reality. They're actually affirming that there is an objective reality, and oftentimes people get the perception of the objective reality wrong. So they seek to eliminate objective reality, but they actually are confirming it. So there's one last thing I'd like to cover. Now, we previously defined the law of what we call the law of non-contradiction. We talked about self-defeating statements. And these are part of what we would call, what philosophers like to call first principles. We call them first principles because they are the beginning of how we discover truth. And there's really nothing behind them. We do not use other principles to prove them. These principles are inherent in the nature, in, re, in nature, in reality, and they're what you would call self-evident. And we, like I said before, we live our everyday, li everyday lives using these self-evident principles. Imagine this, if you would, uh, let's say you're going to buy something, and the, you, the cashier says that'll be $20, and you hand them a dime, and then they'd probably give you an odd look at first, but then they would ask for the rest of the money, and you'd say, oh, it costs $20. Well, that's true for you, but not for me. Nobody operates in that way. We don't, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Um, because, again, it violates the principles that we discuss that are self-evident. It's, it's, they're self-defeating, and it, they violate the law of non-contradiction. Now, there is one more principle I want to introduce, and that's called the law of the excluded middle. Now, uh, sorry, the law of the excluded middle. Now, the law of the excluded middle says that one and one, sorry, that one and only one of two contradictory positions must be true. Okay, another way to understand this is that something is or something is not. You can't have something be something and something not be something at the same time. All right. This will have importance for us going forward as we look at observable, observable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. See, the truth of the matter is God is real or he's, he is not. There is not some kind of in-between. Jesus either rose from the dead or he did not. Either Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes on to the Father except through him, or he is not. And like I said in the first class, Christianity makes very specific claims of truth and reality, as does every other religion in the world. The claims by all religions are, by their very nature, contradictory positions. You have a bunch of A's and not A's running around that they contradict each other. Like I said before, they are exclusive claims and there's no, you, there's no middle between them. So that's what I said before is the uniqueness of Christianity. And going forward, we're going to see how we have 
discoverable truth that happened in reality, a supposedly unknowable God comes down into creation and gives us historically verifiable offense in the Gospels and in the person of Jesus Christ, that we can sit there and go, well, did this happen or did this not? Did what Jesus said, is it true? Is it verified by everything that he did? And there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground in regards to that. So, did anybody have any questions? Because that's all I have right now. Yes, no. I know it's a lot. It's kind of, it's, if you, if you want, if you go, go look up some of the stuff and like, um, look at like arguments or statements and then sit there and like really think on it. And what you start to do is you start to actually see how those, the claims that people make, and you'll be able to kind of pick out and be like, that doesn't sound right. I was actually talking to Brenton about this um, on Monday, and he was said that he he did this like with some teenagers in one of uh, uh, in high school, and like he was kind of using that with them, and like it was like blowing their mind for me because if you don't know how to think well about things, and we don't teach people how to think well about things, like it it bends people's minds sometimes, but it's it's true <laughs> there's there is truth and we can observe it so if there's no questions i i meant to open in prayer i apologize yes pastor greg Yeah. Understand why yeah. they're nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that we can talk to them about the Lord. Yeah. Because we're so ingrained in our culture. That's just all we know. Yeah. And we don't question apologetics. We don't yeah. ever think of needing to defend. And because we don't, we don't know how to defend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of look at it. Um, uh, so when I was in the Army, I was, a, I was an intelligence officer. And part of what I had to do was look at the enemy. And see like how they fought and their doctrines and like because what I would bring about the enemy, then the guys who planned the operations, what they would do is is they would structure their defenses and make their planning according to how the enemy fought and where they were at and stuff. So there's really an, an importance that we need to understand. I mean, because we are in spiritual warfare, it is a battle, and we need to understand how the enemy fights, how they maneuver, what they do, the arguments they rely on, um, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Um, and, you know, Satan has been deceiving since the garden. He's been, you know, saying, well, you know, did God really mean that? Is that really what God said? Is that real truth? So we have, but we, I think that's true, Pastor Greg, that, you know, sometimes we don't 
and you know people who were raised up in the church they they don't stop and think about it and other ways or sit there and question, well, why does that person think the way they do? Or why do they believe what they believe? Um, but when you can understand that, then you can speak truth into them. And you can say, well, I understand you believe X and Y, but here's why X and Y are bad or the, why they're false or why what you're saying is actually contradicting itself. So, yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Chris, repeat yes, that. Yes. Okay, yep, sorry. So the, the, uh, the, the comment was is that um, oftentimes uh, people who grow up in the church, they go to college and they're kind of taken aback or they might start to question their faith because they've never been confronted with um, anything but the, the, the Christian worldview that they've grown up in. Um, and I, yeah, I agree with that because that's the thing is, especially then, um, you know, I, cause I can, I can, I was a, like I said, I was a philosophy major, but that was what I felt like. I remember like having these classes and like these professors, like sitting here talking about, all this stuff that, I mean, I had, like I said in the first class that I had, uh, I was kind of raised Catholic, so I had some kind of semblance of maybe God or like an absolute truth. But I remember them like teaching this stuff um, in, a, in a certain way, in a certain manner. I can remember one professor who tried to give equal kind of credence to, to kind of both sides because, I mean, there are rationalist philosophers who believe that, you know, there's objective truth, you can observe truth. That's where all these, like the law of non-contradiction stuff comes from. Uh, but there's ones that like go the route of like, we talk, I mean, Kant and these other guys that like, well, can you really know? Well, what makes this table this table? Like these really weird, like esoteric stuff. And you're like trying to think about it. And you're like, oh, and, you know, um, there's, a, there's a, uh, uh, a guy named Frank Turek and uh, Norman Geisler. And Norman Geisler gives some... Uh, interesting insight where he talks about stuff like this and where he he actually when he went through college he just you know you know used that tactic of like turning the, the, the statement on itself and that you know that he calls it like the roadrunner tactic because it's like the idea of like wily e. coyote running off a cliff and like there's not being any ground out from underneath him and that's what happens when you do that like oh is oh, all truth is relative is that a relative truth you know because it just completely falls out from underneath them because there's there's nothing to stand on there um, and I do think it's important to um, to show and to teach that teach these different things and how the enemy works and how to give a defense and answer them um, because it does it, it strengthens the faith I know sometimes people are apprehensive about doing that because like well if I expose them to this this other like you know non-christian ideas somehow like that going to take root and hold in them kind of thing but if if you have the living God inside of you and you are saved, I mean, you're going, you know, you're, you're going to know what's true and you're going to have that discernment and you're going to be able to, to navigate those, those discussions um, and still stay true to your faith, I feel like. So, 
Any other questions or comments? Okay. I'll go ahead and close out in prayer real quick. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you for this day, Lord. Um, Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you've revealed your truth in so many different ways in creation and your son and your word. Um, it's just such an amazing thing that we have all this evidence that stands before us uh, that we can know that our faith is the one true faith, Lord. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you are a knowable, personal God that we can discover and that we can learn more about in your word. And uh, we just thank you for that, Lord. And just help us as we're going forward, help us to just be encouraged and strengthened because that's part of apologetics too, is that, you know, it strengthens us as believers. And when the hard times come, uh, we know and we can stand on your truth. So please just help this uh, this class be edifying to you. Help it have been edifying to everyone here, Lord. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.